Welcome to Marine Lines, a podcast about Mumbai's hidden worlds from the suburbs to the sea. I'm Raghu Karnad. Can I tell you about the most impressive person I know in this city? Her name is Angelina. It's Anju for short, and she's the woman who looks after my flat. When she arrived in Mumbai, she built her home with her own hands, using construction waste and bamboo, the kind of home we dismissively call Jhopad Patti. One day, municipal workers destroyed her home and Anju recovered. She found more material and she built her home again. And there she raised her children. And at the same time, every day, she came to my family's flat and she helped to raise me. Today, I'm happy to say Anju is the owner of two flats herself with legal titles. And nobody has ever deserved it more. One of the easiest things to like about Mumbai is the way women are able to live here. For my women friends, I think Mumbai is a kind of liberation. It means feeling safe in public, feeling able to dress how you like, and feeling welcome to go out, even after dark. But this isn't just a natural quality the city was born with. It's a legacy, a legacy of working women, especially working class women, mostly from oppressed castes, or like Anju, religious minorities. Their incredible effort, like Anju's effort to survive and to claim her place here, is for me the great human story of Mumbai. And to understand that collective story better, I'm talking to Dr. Ramya Ramnath. She's a development and policy scholar teaching at DePaul University in Chicago. And she's the author of A Place to Call Home, Women as Agents of Change in Mumbai. To write this book, she did an ethnography. She talked to lots of women of all kinds about staying on their feet as they were displaced from their homes in a slum and resettled in flats in a high-rise for planners and policymakers, but also for the rest of us. There's a lot to learn here and a lot to be surprised by. So thank you very much for joining us, Ramya. Thank you, Raghu. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking about you personally and what your history with Mumbai is and what it's, how it's treated you as a working woman, in this case, a professional researcher. I remember my first trip to Mumbai. I traveled from Chennai by train. This was 1992, December 1992. And I was going to visit my aunt and I was traveling on my own. It was my first trip as a young adult without parents heading to Mumbai. And I remember entering Mumbai from the train. I could touch the, I could see the, you know, the railway slums. I could literally touch the clothing lines. I could, the settlements were so close. And it it sort of, um, it was exciting to me. I was like, this is crazy. Um, and I also remember that when I got off the train, the riots had broken up, the Hindu-Muslim riots of 1992-93. So my first trip to Mumbai was supposed to be this trip where I was heading to the fashion capital of the country and I wanted to buy clothes, I remember. <laughs> but I was stuck with my aunt for an entire week in my entire vacation, at the time stuck in um, stuck in her Bandra high rise, um, and did not get to experience Bombay uh, the way most people do. Uh, it was called Bombay at the time, and of course, I realized much later that the brunt of the effect of these riots were indeed felt by those that live in the slum and squatter settlements that I had seen um, in Mumbai on my first trip. And I think that's my personal connection, Raghu. And then, of course, I came for a master's in social work at Tata Institute and became particularly interested in the slum settlements on the fringes of the Sanjay Gandhi National Park, also called the Bori Village National Park. And this was a settlement that was going through massive demolitions. So I had come to do my doctoral work from the US, came back to Bombay in 2003 to study this. And that's sort of the genesis of 
everything that followed, including my dissertation work, then my book that you just were kind to introduce to everybody. So that's my journey. Well, that's two very powerful images, both of the, you know, of, of the slums that characterized Mumbai and also of the kind of destruction that they're vulnerable to, not just destruction, destruction by municipal authorities, but also destruction by social violence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in light of, of that, maybe I've started off on a slightly romantic note, slightly rosy tinted when I talk about how the city treats women. Do you, do you, th- do you think that I, you know, have I launched in with a bit of a cliche? It's a popular cliche for sure. Um, but I think um, it may not apply to all women at all times. Right. I think this is specific to the the woman who gets into a chauffeur-driven car, who has the freedom to um, to get into a train, and then when she comes back home, she again gets into a car. I think the version of Mumbai that I experienced was that women in Mumbai also, you know, when you, you don't see groups of women, for instance, uh, loitering the streets of Mumbai in the middle of the night. <laughs> I mean, they are always in a rush. And that's why I think what attracted me to Mumbai, really, uh, Rahu, was the fact that the woman felt free when she was going to work and coming back from work. Right. That is not necessarily the kind of freedom I associate with um, the street corner rowdies or the boys who can be out in the night at any point without giving it a second thought. So I did not feel that sense of abandon when I was in, I was in Bombay for sure. So I knew that this was a perception largely related to the working woman who travels nine to five, uh, works nine to five, I mean. Uh, Paramita Vora made a, she's another guest on this podcast. She made a lovely film about how difficult it can be to pee, you know, in the absence of public toilets. Oh, I have horrific stories about that, Rabu. Horrific. Given your research areas and your fieldwork, that's automatically a factor that rules out your ability to move, to to loiter, to to work at, you know, at length. It uh-huh. You have to rush home or you have to, you have to use your privilege and find a Starbucks. Entirely. Can I ask you to guide us through a little bit of history? When I think about Mumbai as a city, you know, created by working class women, um, I can think of two sides to that history. One is of women as workers. And I'm aware that the history of the mill industry drew in women workers in very large numbers. And then that helped to characterize Mumbai as a city of working women. So that's women in jobs. Then the other is women as homemakers in the very literal sense that you explored. Women who build and then rebuild the places where they live, uh, often with their own hands. Can you walk us through a little bit, the first part, women as workers and um, and how that introduced them into public space? And I will answer this question, I think, from the perspective of women in Mumbai slums and pavements. Um, and yeah. we are talking about a time period from, say, the late 1970s to the present. Now, the reason I'm choosing 1970s is because it was in the late 1970s, as I'm sure you know, that Mumbai's textile base uh, had declined rapidly. And these redundant mill workers turned to the city's rapidly growing informal economy for work. So while the former mill workers, and especially women, took up home-based, small-scale production, hogged vegetables, cooked food, peddled household items on city streets. So this is the former mill workers who continued to live and work in the central city. 
Now, the newer migrants from the state of Maharashtra and elsewhere, mainly from eastern Uttar Pradesh, where I was brought up, and Bihar, migrated and found shelter and livelihood in the city's northern and uh, eastern peripheries. Now, so on the one hand, 70s was a time when the textile mill was declining, the textile base was declining, but it was also the time when the city's limit had expanded to accommodate a rapidly growing middle class that was working in the service sector. So they uh, settled in new satellite townships that had sprouted in areas like Gorigaon, Kandivili, Mulund, Bhandu, Thane. And these areas hosted manufacturing and production activities. Uh, you also saw dense middle-class residential areas coming up in these, in these locations. And of course, newer slums. And with it, an informal economy that supported the city's poor migrants, right? So poor women's aspirations have been dramatically affected by liberalization in 1991, right? right. So many women, poor women included, have found opportunities in different industries that have developed since then. So for example, export-oriented manufacture of garments, you have jewelry, you have embroidery, you have leather goods, but also interestingly in the service-oriented industries, such as in catering, in beauty parlors, in call centers, in computer IT-related industries. Now, these right. industries all demand a, a very different labor force, a young female labor force, whose attributes include really a high level of skills and sort of manual dexterity and an eagerness to learn, but a willingness to work long hours for very low wages. So this is the transformation that, take, that takes place uh, over the last decades of 20th century. And suddenly so many new women are finding a more heterogeneous source of employment. What they aren't finding, I'm guessing, is good real estate or very comfortable shelter because that's always been most people in Mumbai that is a that's an enormous challenge and for the poor of course Mumbai creates space in 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 interesting ways but certainly not in the most generous ways now you've spent a lot of time with the women who have lived in in slums like this can you tell us about that that community and about their lives before the displacement that you studied how much time do we have ragu <laughs> i wish we had hours i know i mean um so so a majority of these 120 women who participated in my study had migrated to mumbai from sleepy towns and villages near and far, and had settled with their young families, as I said, in the buffer zone of the Sanjay Gandhi National Park, which is situated right in the center of this ballooning sprawl that I've been talking about. So their first roof in the city, quite like Anju, your, your domestic help, was often a tiny makeshift dwelling that they built themselves, a structure, a structure within a growing series of slum settlements. These are slum settlements that shelter several thousand new and old migrants to this day. Now, what is interesting about this particular uh, sort of this vast group of slum settlements surrounding the park is that uh, it has undulating topography. So how the story of their lives lived in the slums really depends on which woman you ask. So let's take the instance of this 19-year-old uh, Leela. She was brought up in the park slums. Her parents had migrated to Bombay from the northern Indian state of, you know, UP. This was in the late 1980s. 
they ran a grocery store from the lower level of their self-built two-story home in a park slum. So the grocery store downstairs, the living quarters upstairs. Leela recollects her home with great nostalgia and she's all smiles. She said, and I remember this so distinctly, and I think she was one of the first young adults I recruited. And she said that hers was a home of five rooms. Each room had a door. To the side was a kitchen. To the other side was a bathroom. And she said that was everything. And she said, and I quote her, when we were about to shift, I did not want to move. Right? The area she came from, interestingly, had schools within walking distance. Actually, there were several private schools in the park fringes, several municipality-run schools. So she remembers her friends, she says, her neighbors. And in doing so, she says, if someone were to fall sick, they would come and see and they would ask, how are you? What is it? They would just come to the door and check up on us and leave. Right? So she goes to say that where my house was, over there, there was a tree nearby, in front water would flow, there would be breeze, I would uh, take in a lot of air. Um, it would feel good over there. So it was Leela's parents who, upon migrating to the city, had worked really hard over several years, over two decades, to make that place a home. They could actually afford to, because they were residents of an infrastructure-rich slum located in the lower elevations of the park. This is not the story that you will hear other women in higher elevations talk about. And I mean, of course, I have many of these stories. So to Leela, a place to call home was defined by togetherness, by the freedom of movement, by play, by proximity to nature. And that's her attachment to a place. Uh, and in fact, her perception of life at the new site is circumscribed by those memories. She's like, she misses the open air, the cool air, the playing with friends. So this high-rise living has really changed her perception of how, what makes a place home. Her story kind of uh, highlights something, which is that these natural spaces, something that's been a focus uh, in, these, in the conversations I've been having, natural spaces in the city also serve, are also claimed and, and belong in some ways to, to humans who are newly arriving in the city or finding a place in the city. So natural spaces are probably disputed by the people who want to preserve them for natural life or, or whatever the, the, the pristine state of the park is thought to be. And people who want to use them so that human uh, residents of Mumbai have better opportunities and, and have lives like Leela did in her childhood. You, you, now, now I sense you're going to tell us a different, you're going to give us a different uh, a portrait of a very different kind of life in the same colony. So this is a story about Pariniti. And this is just one story. Uh, so she's a 40-year-old widow with five daughters. And the story of what it means to have a place for her means something different. So her husband had passed on before she moved to become a legal owner of her apartment unit. She was born in Bombay and lived in a rental unit with her sick alcoholic husband in the park slum. Now his alcoholism, as well as pressure from her mother-in-law, caused her to take up job as garbage picker. And she was separating paper from plastic bags that were discarded in the municipal garbage dumps in upper middle-class residential neighborhoods near the park. So she made money selling sorted items to a kabadiwala, a waste collector. Uh, she earned about 10 to 20 rupees a day, but had no control over her earnings. 
So she basically told me I would work and get 10 to 20 rupees. I would hide two or three rupees for my belly to eat on the sly. So undernourishment combined with the health hazards of waist picking and regular beatings caused two failed pregnancies. Oh, dear. Um, and roughly 10 years later, and with the help of a gang of four goons, she became an owner of a small parcel of land in the park slum. And she owed these goons uh, about 7,000 rupees for this small parcel of land. So she builds a bamboo shack on this parcel and it remained in an unfinished state for nearly 14 years. For all of the remaining years that she lived in the slum. So to help pay for this parcel, she began working to deliver water to other households in the slum. She would fill water from a municipal stand post downhill and carry the water to the drums placed outside the homes in the slum. Through all of this, her ailing husband never loosened his grip over the lives. Uh, so he would insist that the door be kept shut, supposedly to protect his wife and his five daughters from prying eyes. So Pariniti told me ironically that she felt safer outside than she felt inside her rickety shack. So this is a contrasting story to Leela and Pariniti is a Dalit, a member of the scheduled caste category. Therefore, the extent of her marginalization was so severe that a move to an apartment at the resettlement site actually meant, at least for now, a move to a place where she felt a whole lot safer, where she could open and close door to her home at her own free will and did not have to pick and sort through people's garbage or deliver water to them. Very fascinating. Yeah, she made a place in the slum, but was not necessarily attached to it because the place evoked memories of a life with very few pleasant memories, right? And So there's no single simple narrative that describes either the life that people have in a slum like the Park Slum, nor the transition as they move into a proper development. I grew up hearing a lot of conversation about how bad slums were since they're illegal encroachments. And I've come to see a very different side of that, largely through people like Anju. What remains an interesting question for me, I don't have any clear answers, is redevelopment projects and resettlement projects. There's a side to that that is displacement, that is forcing people out of the homes they've created. On the other hand, it does seem to deliver people to more legal security and uh, to the relative security of legal ownership, more facilities sometimes. What I'm very keen to hear is how women like the two women you just introduced us to experienced this new settle, this new situation. Yeah, so again, quite like the earlier story I shared, Raghuta, the answer to that question really depends on which woman you again talk to. When one talks about sort of displacement, relocation and resettlement, actually things get really murky because the site that I studied is fairly unique. Now, this was an instant where people were displaced and resettled right in the center of the city. You know, so this is, they were resettled in Chandivili near Povai. But by and large, I'll speak to sort of a broader issue here. It is hugely commonplace to relocate slum dwellers from the inner city to urban fringes. But even in this case, where people moved roughly about 10 to 12 kilometers away from their slums, livelihoods were disrupted. There was disruption of business ties with customers. There was um, fractured and severed informal 
networks of survival. There was dislocation from the central employment hub of the city. And there was, of course, the additional stress of heightened transportation costs incurred in commuting. And these resettlement sites actually recreate that sense of marginalization. Right? right? So, for instance, I'll give you sort of a brief example. You know, I must point out that despite their move to a secure home ownership, the woman's name was not included in the title deed to the apartment unit. Oh, that's quite this unbelievable. Was, that was a key miss by the NGO that had coordinated the resettlement and rehabilitation project. And I would say it was a key miss by all stakeholders, the state government included. So this meant that the event of a separation, in the event of a divorce or widowhood, the woman has to fight a very long battle to establish her claim to the apartment unit. Now, this was a challenge that several women included in this book, we're actually struggling to tackle. So that's an example of how the resettlement process or how redevelopment is managed is more important than sort of that patta that you get at the end of the process. Right, that's a very good example. In fact, I really find it shocking and it does underline how just building pakka walls and a staircase underneath a, a life that's socioeconomically marginalized doesn't take away that marginalization. And also the, the the particular marginalization that women can face in that situation and the particular struggles of women can actually be exacerbated. So from all of these conversations you've had, tell us what is it you heard working class women saying about their place in the city, which policymakers and the rest of the public need to understand better? Many of the participants, actually, it's interesting you asked me this question because many of the women voiced their vision stating that I must share the audio and video recording of the discussions I had with them, with others in the resettlement side, that I must take it to the madams and sirs, which is the sahib log um, in the NGOs, in the state, to private developers and national and international donors, who they said claim to act on their behalf. So the suggestions that these gave me and gave to us all actually symbolizes an emerging desire for change and, and it defies many prevailing methods of livelihood generation that tends to be prescribed by external stakeholders. And I know that's a whole lot of words right here, but the lived experience of those women who work as hard as these women have to make their places a home deserves careful, very nuanced listening. What we have today in resettlement and rehabilitation policies, and in many other policy arenas, be it education, healthcare, economic and gender empowerment, is that NGOs and private sector players are being called to serve as bridges between what is, which is the slum, and what should or could be, which is a high-rise city, a beautified city. Now, the current housing environment treats NGOs and all private sector players and government agencies as instruments who can build the capacity of the poor, can do social change. But women, I think, clearly stated that this decentralized environment is not yielding expected results. Each woman in this book describes her home-related identity in distinct places through time. What she makes clear is that we need to pay a whole lot more attention to many other forms of organizing that are taking place 
despite and indeed because of the shortfalls of all of these powerful institutional benefactors. They are asking for safety and employability. They are asking for segregated spaces for uh, recreation and skill building. They are asking for access to credit, asking for better control over informal, home-based, subcontracted employment. They're actually sharing a preference for home-based work, which is, so to give you an instance, home-based work is considered less empowering than other forms of work. So you cited the example, Raghu, of the woman in Bombay heading out to work, and so she feels more empowered. But these women at the resettlement site are asking for home-based work because it offers them more networking opportunities because of female seclusion norms that often influences a woman's choice of work location. Home-based work is a popular notion. I think we need to respect that, right? So subcontracted home-made sort of home-based workers are a distinct category of laborers who are hugely exploited. So they are asking for connections to lead contractors so that they increase their wages so that they get more piece rate wages from, from making that piece of jewelry or from making that switch button for light switches that we have in our homes. So they, are, they have very concrete suggestions and they are asking for people to listen to their lives in the slum, their lives currently, and to treat them as those that have assets rather than those that are needy. So Ramya, from all these conversations, is it possible to summarize for us what you heard working class women saying um, about what they need from policymakers, what they need the public to understand about their place in the city? I think broadly stated, uh, cities in general, I strongly believe they are saying have a lot to learn from them. First of all, they want to be understood for the diversity of their past experiences. Who are they? Where they've come from? Um, what were they doing in the slums where they were? And the second, so understand them for the diversity that they bring to the city. And secondly, to recognize them as those with assets, not just as needy citizens, folks that are taking from the city, but those that have phenomenal potential to give to the city. And this is precisely what they're saying. Take me seriously, give me a genuine platform, a genuine um, seat at the table, let me be a part of designing, implementing, um, and evaluating these places. And it's not token representation, but really genuine, genuine democracy. <laughs> so That's beautifully said. And I'd like to think that exactly that kind of conversation with those women is what will take us closer to genuine democracy. I know that you must have just a wealth of more detailed perspective and and information about women's lives in the city and working women's lives. Anyone who wants to access that should pick up a copy of A Place to Call Home, Women as Agents of Change in Mumbai, which is Ramya's book. And I'm just going to say to thank you at the moment for making uh, these women who power so much of the city, who work in our homes, for making them so much more visible as individual identities and individual lives. And I, you know, it's, it's something that I hope we won't be able to unsee. Thank you so much, Ramya. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.